Amen. Good to see you this morning out in this nice little cold sunshine. And now, though, we got, we got good news. When you walk out of here, you're going to get greeted by a big, beautiful blue sky. Amen. Hallelujah. Good to see you. Turn around and look at someone and say, you made my day. Hallelujah. Because you came to worship with me. Amen. You made my day because you came to worship with me. Amen. So this morning we're doing uh, part two of this series. It's a new day and a new way initiating change in our lives. And let me tell you something. This is, this is the way we are as humans. Most of us hate change. It's true. Most of us hate change. In fact, if you study the personality profiles, four types of personalities, and if you study them in percentages, which 62% of the population is of the phlegmatic personality, think about that, 62%. That's the bulk of the population. That's why McDonald's is so popular. You get it their way. But it better taste the same every time. Amen? And then you look at the next largest group, which is the melancholy, and that's about 23 to 25%. And one thing about those two types, which make up nearly everybody, there's only about 14% left. That's the rest of us. About 2% of us are choleric in temperament. And about 11% of us are sanguine in temperament. Now, those, first, those personality types all have characteristics, strengths, and weaknesses. And the thing about the weaknesses of 86% of us is we hate change. We hate change. We despise change. We will literally do almost anything to not have change, and when change is in any way forced upon us, we have problems. Amen. We murmur, we complain, we find a million reasons why we don't have to change or shouldn't. Amen. What was wrong with what was? Nothing. Well, there's a scripture that I brought to you last week to start this, Psalm 55, 19. God will hear and afflict them, even he who abides from old, Selah, because they do not change, therefore they do not fear God. There's only one being in all creation that doesn't need to change. And that's why he said, I am God and I change not. Amen? That's Malachi 3, 6. I am the Lord, and I change not. Because if I changed, y'all be smoke. Amen. If I changed. But he's sworn. He's sworn by his own name. An everlasting covenant with those who seek him, with those who come after him, with those who believe in, trust in, adhere to, and rely upon his son, to those who obey. Amen. And so we looked at a lot of things last night, but I want to read this one quote. This is a quotable, quotable quote. 
even when you were unconcerned, he began to interfere with your life. He came after you. He disturbed you. God is initiating. Well, why would he come after me when I was unconcerned? Why would he disturb me when I was doing fine? Because he loves you too much to leave you the same. Amen? Turn around and tell someone that he loves you too much to leave you the same. How much does he love me? He loves me so much that he is initiating change to become like him. Amen? He is initiating the change in us to become like him. And so that's why we last week looked at 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image. From glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Amen. Turn around and look at somebody and say, I have a dream to become like him in everything. The only thing you can't become like Jesus in is being the firstborn son. You can imitate him in all things except you cannot imitate him in preeminence. Because he has the full earned rank of the firstborn son. Amen? In him is all authority, power, and might, and dominion given. But then he turned around to us and said, just as my father has given me everything, I give you. Isn't that awesome? He said, in fact, I want to share with you, all the Father's given me. He said, just as I sat down before my, or beside my Father on His right hand, you will sit beside me on my right hand. That's pretty powerful. You're destined for the throne. Turn around and look at somebody and say, you're destined for the throne. So we can't allow you to have any less image of yourself than he has given. If I don't preach to you your full potential, then you remain limited. And the Bible says we limit the Holy One of Israel. Jesus said... There are no limits. If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. But then the psalmist said, but you have limited the Holy One of Israel. Jesus said, because of your unbelief, I'm unable to do so many things in your life. As a young believer, many times I would question God why he wasn't doing more. And after many years of serving him, I found out he's always waiting on me. Because I'm rejecting the changes he's trying to initiate to make me more like him so that he can give me more. 
See, anytime you think God should be giving you more, all you have to realize is you have to become more before he can give you more. Become more what? More like him. He has no problem blessing his son. So when you become like his son, you move into that same place of blessing. And Jesus told us this over and over through the Gospels. Paul told us this over and over through the epistles. Amen. This is our potential. Last week I shared with you, even Jesus, when looking at his disciples, when he was getting ready to leave, he told them, I have many things to say to you, but you're not yet able to bear them. John 16, 12. Now, he wants to give us more. But he can only give us what we're willing to receive. And believe it or not, we all resist the change at times in our life that we need now to become more like him. I heard an old preacher say one time, a rut in life is a grave with both ends knocked out of it. How many of y'all get in ruts? Groundhog Day. Amen. Groundhog Day. You get up to the same song, you go through the same routines, and you end every day wishing it was different, but it won't be because you refuse to initiate the change it will take to make you more like him. Kind of what Joe got up and, sorry, worship team, I mean, talk about raining on a parade. I was thinking the worship team, you know, they kind of usually have a little powwow sometime during the service. They just met and scheduled Joe somewhere else to preach next week. (laughs) And I understand that because every time we sing those songs, I think the same thing. Joe just said what I'm always thinking, but I recognize songwriters today in the Christian church are so weak in theology, they keep asking God to do something he's already done instead of thanking him for what he's done and appropriating what he's done. And I understand that, but it is a cool song. I like the song. I like the melody. I just, again, we're asking God to do something he's already done. There ought to be a way that songwriters can initiate phrases like, Holy Spirit, manifest in me. That's what we should be saying. Instead of come, well, I've already come. Now what? Manifest in me. The word manifest means to show forth. Holy Spirit, let me know you're here. Manifest in me. That should be the way we're singing for his presence. Now, if you're not born again, you could be saying, Holy Spirit, please come. Now, I just wrecked the song list for the next 25 services, you know. Ellie is already in panic, Googling, is there any songs out there? Anyway. (laughs) But you know what? We'll work with what we got. Amen? Everybody say, they didn't break anything. Amen. It's all right. It's all right. I understand that. I asked J.D. one time, I said, why are all the songs so shallow in theology? And he said, because they're being written by 20-year-old hipsters who've never read their Bible. But they got cool tattoos and cool haircuts. Thank you. I knew I'd get an old fart somewhere in here stirred up. 
Okay, moving right along. Where were we? John, 1 John 3, 2. <laughs> Beloved, now we are the children of God. When? So we weren't singing tonight. Jesus, make me your child. Jesus, make me your child. Why? Because he already did. If you're born again, we should be singing, Father, thank you, I'm your child. Thank you, I'm your child. Thank you for the gift of salvation, right? Now we are the children of God. Turn around and look at somebody and say, hey, child of God, you're looking good this morning. Come on. Come on, Josh, work with me. Don't just smile at your wife. Tell her, hey, child of God, you're looking good. I want to see your lips move, son. Don't be rebellious. I got to take the heat off Joe, you know what I mean? <laughs> Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. So we could also sing, Lord, reveal what is to come. Show us our potential. Show us what we can become. That'd be a good song. Amen. That'd be a great song. Show us what we can become. Whoo. I like that. But we know when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Years ago, when I was a young believer, right after Noah came out of the ark, When I was a young believer, years ago, I read this verse, and I started saying this, and I've been saying it for over 40 years. If I can see, I can change. Say that with me. If I can see, I can change. Why? I need a model. I need a model. I was on the phone for an hour and a half last night with Kevin Leon, and he said something to me. He said, David, he said, let me ask you as a pastor, what are the three main things that are wrong with the American church? And we're going through and we're discussing all this stuff. And he said, he, he was telling me, he said, you know, the word disciple is in the New Testament 272 times. The word Christian is in the New Testament once. But we don't call ourselves disciples. We call ourselves Christians. But I want to tell you something. To say you're a Christian in this culture is a very low bar. But to say you're a disciple? I mean, when's the last time someone come up to you and say, do you believe in God? You say, yes, I am a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. What kind of expectation does that title put upon you? That's why, you know, the, the, the rich young ruler, or not the rich young ruler, but the ruler came to Jesus and said, good teacher. Good teacher. Why did Jesus reject that title? He rejected it. He said, why do you call me good? There's none good but God. How many times do we say a day, he's a good guy? 
contradicting what Jesus said. So we take words like good and we redefine them into a tolerance. Right? I love Romans 2 in the Passion Translation. It says, do not mistake God's tolerance for his acceptance. And then the next verse says, he demands you repent before he'll accept you. Think about that. So again, why, you know, you can't come to him and not change. You can't. It's impossible. Well, you can, but he can't accept you the way you are. Everybody says, come to him as you are. He'll accept you. No, he won't. You come to him as you are, and he'll say, I can't accept you. You have no covenant with me. See, we also took the word covenant out, and we replaced it with testament. The New Testament. That's what your Bible says. But that word wasn't testament in the original. It was covenant. That meant contract. Contract means an agreement between two parties. But we want to only have God obligatory towards us. Boy, that's a mouthful right there. We want him to be the only one obligated. Right? Well, don't put none of this on me. He's the Savior, yes, and you're the obedient disciple. Amen? So again, we, we look at initiating change, and we've got to take responsibility. We have a, a Chad and, and the social media and the media team, they, they take clips out of my messages, and they put them on Instagram, little 30-second clips, and, and they call them reels. How many of y'all get reels on your phone? Shorts. I think they're called on Facebook, is that right? Shorts or reels. And so I began to notice something on my reels. Anytime I say to the American church, God loves you. God wants to bless you. This is going to be the most exciting time of your life. You're about to experience great increase from God. My reels blow into the thousands every time. Ding, 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 ding. Sounds like a machine gun, man, going off. I get, I get hundreds of likes, thousands of views. But then I come out and say, you need to get some things right in your life, and you need to take responsibility for the things that aren't. It's like, ding. Fifteen minutes later, ding. Half hour later, ding. Wes told me one day, he said, I can turn that off on your phone. I said, I can turn it off too. Just say something that counts responsibility. Americans hate it. They'd rather be lied to than told the truth. I said, they'd rather be lied to than told the truth. That's a fact. The American church loves lies. As long as it means I have to do nothing and God has to do everything, I love it. But the minute there's a covenant mentioned, a contract, where two parties each have an equal responsibility, silence. 
crickets. And so I have watched this over the months, and I laugh about it because Chad will send me a reel, and I'll, I'll just pull it up, and I'll say, oh, they're going to hate that one. They're going to hate that one. And unfortunately, because of the way I'm a truth teller and I preach, I have more hate than love. I'm just telling you. That's why every seat in this building isn't full. Not not all people want the truth. Thank you, Charlie. I got one amen off that one. Hallelujah. When I was a kid, I used to listen to this group. (laughs) Ironically, the name of the group was Nazareth. went and saw them in concert a couple times, and, and they were not a godly group by any means. But I'll never forget they had this song, and every once in a while I hear it when I'm reading the scriptures. It went, love hurts. Mm, love hurts. I just want to shout amen every time I hear it, you know. Love hurts. In the church, they think if you say something that hurts, it's not truth. Because they're so used to Mr. Rogers in the pulpit and his little gospel train ding-dinging around the sanctuary. They forgot that Jesus is a prophet. And God said, because they will not change, he will afflict them. When's the last time someone came up for prayer and said, would you pray for me while I'm having this problem, this problem? And you looked at him and said, you want to know the truth? You want me to lie to you? And most people will say, lie to me. Or they'll say, is what you're going to tell me, is it going to hurt? Yeah, then lie to me. You're going to do great. God's going to bless you. I'll lie to you. But the fact is, Love hurts. Some of y'all going to go out here and pull that up on iTunes. Be singing it all the way home. Love hurts, because I ain't done yet. If you ain't singing it yet, you will be by 12 o'clock. <laughs> I've also learned if I can't laugh at myself, with myself, then i got a problem. Amen. I have to look at myself in the mirror every day, as you should, saying, you really got some things to change to be more like Jesus. And he has that expectation of you. Amen. You don't have to be a rock star. In fact, you know, sometimes sometimes someone will get a little zealous for God. They'll get a little bit to where they're actually acting like something you'd call disciple. And immediately everybody starts saying, you're called to the ministry. And I want to look at them and say, no, you're just being a normal Christian. You're, you're a disciple now. And so a disciple in this culture looks like a rock star. You know, our, our work ethic is so poor in America. I tell our young people this all the time. I say, all you have to do is show up and make some attempt at doing your job, and you will be a rock star where you work. You will excel by just showing up, passing a drug test, and attempting to do something while you're there. 
That puts you in the winner's circle in today's job market. Everybody say, let's practice this. My heavenly choir here. I need some help from the upstairs. You're more heavenly. You're closer to Jesus. Say, love hurts. Thank you. Thank you very much. We'll be playing here all week. Amen. Hallelujah. So we shall see him like he is, and then we shall become more like him. Now, that's our review from last week. So let's go to Mark 2.18. This morning, I want to talk to you a little bit about initiating change through fasting and prayer. Hmm. Somebody said, I just got hungry. (laughs) What's for lunch? The disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came to him and said, why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. I mean, that'd be like a bunch of friends getting here saying, hey, we're going to throw you a bachelor party, and by the way, there'll be no food or drink there. What kind of bachelor party would that be? Not a very fun one. We're going to fast. Amen. So he said, but the days will come. Everybody say, they're here. When the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Now, let me ask you a question. Does Jesus put upon us an expectation that we will practice fasting? Yes. The answer to that is yes. Does Jesus put upon us an expectation? That we, as his disciples, will practice fasting. Amen. So, how many Christians do you know who practice fasting outside this church? How many Christians you work with that don't go to a church like this that practice fasting in their life as a discipline. I'm going to tell you how many I worked with when I was out working in the secular world. None. Not a one. In fact, I grew up in church, little Methodist church. I never even heard ever in my Christian life up through the age of 22 a mention of any kind of expectation for the church to fast except for one thing. If you were Catholic, you were supposed to give up something for Lent. But as a Protestant, because I wasn't Catholic, as a Protestant, there was never an expectation ever put upon us as a congregation 
to have any kind of practice of fasting and very little emphasis on prayer. In fact, Pulpit Helps Magazine years ago came out, and I've just recently checked, and the statistic has not really changed. The average Christian prays less than three minutes a day, and the average clergyman, I use that word loosely, prays less than five minutes a day. So I'm going to trust a man to shepherd my soul who prays less to his God than five minutes a day? I don't think so. At least I'm not. You can do whatever you want, but I'm not going to trust a man who doesn't live in a fasted life and a prayer-filled life to shepherd my soul. I want a man that's doing exactly what Jesus put forth as an expectation for him to do as a shepherd of souls. So, now, we're in January, and, you know, the month of January has become a traditional month in the church, certain churches, especially social media grouping churches, for fasting. And all, almost every millennial-led or, you know, social media-driven church will begin a 21-day fast in January and they will, the pastors will lead their congregation in this and then challenge them to fast. Now, very few ever call for a real, what I call a real fast, which is you drink water. That's fasting. So they'll say, I'm going to give up broccoli, <laughs> hamburgers, and Frito, chili flavored Fritos for the 21 days, and I'm fasting for God. But they always make sure the fast is broken before the Super Bowl. Well, thank God someone's trying to do anything, right? But at the same time, as a shepherd of your soul, I want to teach you what the Bible says about fasting and not just the, the latest millennial trend. Because Jensen Franklin actually was the one who kind of started that trend about 20 years ago. He began announcing on social media that he was leading his church in January on a 21-day fast, and most of them had an anticipation of a partial fast, or some even practiced, like the Muslims, a sun-up to sundown fast. For, and, and I'm not saying any of that fasting isn't isn't good. Anything you do to bring discipline to your body and soul to me is good. Okay? But if you want maximum effectiveness, I don't want good, I want God. Good is one too many zeros. I want maximum effectiveness. In other words, if I'm going to crucify my flesh of something, I'd just soon get her done. And get maximum effectiveness out of it, okay? So Jesus gives us some things. Now, let's look at where, and then this 21-day fast that is so popular today, it's only in January, by the way. I don't know why God only calls Christians to fast in January, but that's, that's when it happens. And like I say, the fast must conclude by the Super Bowl. Why? Because we know the chips and dips are coming out on the Super Bowl. And to go to the Super Bowl party, fasting would be an abomination to the NFL. Amen. That would be blasphemy of your favorite team. <laughs> Thank you. 
All right, let's go to the book of Daniel and find out where this, what we call Daniel fast, where did this come from and what was its intent and why would we imitate it? In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. The message was true, but the appointed time was long, and he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks, 21 days. I ate no pleasant food. No meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all. So if you want to do a true Daniel fast, you can't take a bath for three weeks. <laughs> Till the whole three weeks were fulfilled. Now on the 24th day of the first month, as I was by the side of that great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with gold of Euphaz. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire. His arms and feet were like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words were like the voice of a multitude. So that tells me that this angelic being, it could have been the pre-incarnate Christ himself, but this angelic being wasn't an alien gray, like the, like the Discovery Channel wants you to believe, like ancient aliens want you to believe. Well, I think Daniel really saw an alien gray. No, I never heard a, d a description of an alien gray that sounded like this, do you? Amen. Didn't look like some little gray scrawny reptilian guy with a oblong head and black eyes. Amen. Just thought I'd throw that in for free. Suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and the palms of my hands. Now, Daniel was a prophet. And he had discovered in the book of Jeremiah that God had promised that after 70 years of captivity, that Israel would be released from Babylon. And when he discovered that, he did the math and said, oh my goodness, 70 years are up. This is the year it's supposed to happen, so why hadn't it happened? So he began to fast and pray and mourn and cry out to God saying, you promised us deliverance after 70 years, and the 70 years is fulfilled and we're not delivered. That's what initiated his fast, okay? Not just because it was the month of January. So if Daniel fasts only work in the month of January, I would have to ask, are you just doing it for tradition? Or do you have a heart cry? Because to fast without heart is dead religious works. Amen. Are you hearing me? To fast without heart. Daniel said, I didn't just decide one day, I'm going to lose 10 pounds, cut meat out of my diet, cut chili Fritos out of my diet, no more nachos. And I'm going to pray a little bit while I'm doing it. And I'm going to blast it all over social media. That's not what Daniel did. He was in mourning. He was crying out to God for a deliverance and a breakthrough. 
Now, let's go to Matthew chapter 17, verse 15. Here we, we, we step into a scene of the Bible, a scene in the life of Christ where a father is crying out, Lord, have mercy on me, on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, and he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered. Now, how many of y'all ever went to Jesus and asked him for something in prayer? How many of y'all ever had Jesus answer you? You faithless pervert. <laughs> Isn't that what he answered here? You faithless, perverse generation. See, again, we paint a picture of the Bible, of Jesus, out of our own traditions that is not biblical. When's the last time you heard a rebuke from God? If you haven't, you've blocked his voice and you've received the voice of another. I've said this to you guys. I've been in Parkersburg for 23 years in this church, and you've heard me say it a million times. Any time God's speaking to you, it's usually going to be something you don't want to hear. And I only say that from experience and what I've learned from the Bible. Faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear you? Bring him here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately. And I probably would have done that too. Because he just called me a pervert. Don't want to have another public conversation with him. Last time I spoke up in public, he called me a faithless pervert. Notice how, think about how in your subconscious you clean that up when you read it. In your subconscious, you do. Why? Because we have a cultural present presented Jesus that's not always the biblical Jesus. So they said, why couldn't we cast it out? And look what he said to them. Because of your unbelief. I want to just say this. When you ask the Lord for something, or if I ask the Lord for something, and it is not given, then there's a couple of reasons that I assume it's not given. Number one, it's not time. Number two, it's not his will. And number three, because I have unbelief. That's how I always take it when he don't answer my prayers. Wrong timing. It's not my time. I'm asking for something I'm not ready to receive. Amen. Think about it. Number two, Not his will. Why? Because 
In 1 John, it says, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Well, wait a minute. Based upon just relative reasoning, if it says, if I ask anything according to his will, he hears me. Well, what if I ask something that's not according to his will? Now, I feel, here's what I factored in to my life 40 years ago when I read that. That must mean there's some kind of a filter between me and him. <laughs> it's not his will. It don't even reach the throne. Amen. But when it's his will, it reaches the throne. Or number three, like I say, I have unbelief, doubt in my life. And my faith is not appropriating that promise. So that takes me back to a place of humility no matter what. In prayer, I got one posture, humble. In prayer, I got one position, bowed down. Amen. If I'm my physical body isn't bowed down, my heart sure is. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth in my life at your time. Amen. That's a good prayer. So, Jesus said next in verse 21, how be it, however, everybody say conditional promises. In fact, every promise in the Bible is conditional. Americans love the unconditional love message. Did you ever, did you ever read in your Bible the phrase unconditional love? Have you ever read it in your Bible? If it's in there, pull it out, I'll eat the page. <laughs> that term was actually initiated in the 30s by pop psychology to help people try to feel better about themselves, trying to coach people out of bad self-esteem issues, which really are a result of sin anyway. Amen. But anyway, we adopted it in the church because of the love of God, and we look at God's love as, quote, unconditional. However, we have to redefine love if we're going to call it unconditional. Because love is not acceptance. Amen. Amen. Again, just, let's just get it biblical. Does God love people? Absolutely. The word love is used to describe him. In fact, Greek scholars say that they can find very little use of the word agape before biblical writing because it's almost as if in the Greek language they had to find a new word to define the kind of love God is. So we have four words for love in the Greek language. We have the word phileo, which means a love of a friend. We have the word storge, which is family love or relative love. Then we have the word eros, which is the word we get erotic, which is romantic love. And then there's this new word that began to appear in the Greek language about the time the Bible was being written, and it's called agape. And this is a love that initiates action for. For God initiated action toward the world to save them. 
Amen. God loves the world. God loves the world. Well, we've reduced that to a feeling. Reminds me of another song. Feelings. Whoa, feelings. Feelings like I've never known. Anyway, we've made God's love feelings. So if you hurt someone's feelings, that can't be the love of God. But he just called his people unfaithful perverts. Calling their faith or how they come to him. You came to me in an unfaithful, perverted manner. Wow. And to pervert something doesn't just mean sexual. It means to take something to a wrong use or appropriate something to a wrong use. So, this kind, he said, however, let me give you a condition now. You, you guys want to know why you couldn't cast this devil out? I'm going to tell you. This kind of devil, I've heard some people, preachers say, this kind of unbelief. But that's an assumption that I don't know that you could really, but it's the same result. This kind of devil or this kind of unbelief, because he said you couldn't cast him out because of the unbelief. So whether you couldn't get the devil out or your unbelief was stopping it, it's the same result that is cured by prayer and fasting. Just say, Dave, I got something in my life. It won't come out. I can't stop. I can't change. How do I initiate change when I can't get a victory? I can't get an answer. I can't get a breakthrough. Well, I've been doing this one for 42 years, and it's yet to fail me. But I don't do Daniel fasts. I'm just going to tell you, I don't, when I fast, I fast. That means I'm going to cut the food out of my life. I'm going to drink mainly water, things without calories. I will not put calories in my body, so to speak, when I'm fasting. Why? It's fasting. Why? Well, I won't feel good if I don't drink juices. Then fasting isn't meant to make you feel good. Turn around and look at someone and say, fasting is fun. Not. It's an affliction of the soul. Now, some people say, well, what do we have to do? Punish ourselves with fasting so that God will answer our prayers? Well, you got to understand how fasting works with the human body. When you fast, your body goes through all kinds of wonderful changes. Number one, you were designed to fast. How many of y'all have heard in the diet trends, hunter-gatherer? You know, I just read a new thing last week said 92% of Americans are fatted. I stopped. I went, what? Because I know the obesity rates in America. I know that. But I, and, they, and then I read the article and it said that they've come up with a new term to help <laughs> soften the blow maybe. They, they've come up with a new term in American culture to describe us as being fatted. And the 
term fatted means that your stomach diameter or circumference, not diameter, your stomach circumference is more than half your height. And they say if you are fatted, it will increase your risk of diabetes and heart disease, high blood pressure and stroke by upwards of 52%. So I, I read the article, I walked in my bathroom and found out I was fatted. Now before that, I was just a little pudgy. I had a little bit of a belly. Pastor Dave, he's not fat, but he's got a little bit of a belly. He's fatted. That's according to the new medical terminology of America. 92%. So I said that to say we probably don't have a problem where we're fasting too much. Because that would be detrimental to our health. Amen? So, all right, let's go to Matthew 6. And I want to talk about the methods and motives of fasting. I had someone ask me recently, now I am fasting and because I do want to make changes in my life and I want to, basically they were saying I want to initiate spiritual and physical changes in my life and I am fasting and they said, is it wrong for me to consider the physical benefit? And I said, absolutely not. Because the Bible says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. See, fasting is a spiritual discipline, but guess what? It rewards in more than just the spirit. It also rewards in the soul and the body. So fasting actually causes a suffering in a way, an affliction in a way, but it rewards spirit, soul, and body. So as I was a young man, I had a very sordid past. Uh, you've heard my testimony. I was dealing drugs, born, you know. I mean, literally two weeks before I was saved, I was in Bangkok, Thailand, in a Buddhist temple, stoned out of my mind, smuggling heroin to America. If you haven't heard my testimony, that's the long and short of it. Two weeks later, I was John the Baptist Jr. <laughs> And so as a young man, I had so many demons in me because I had given my body over as a temple of sin since I was like nine years old. I was guilty of every sin listed in the Bible, except murder, and I could have prevented one of them and didn't. So I consider myself guilty of murder. And so again, I was, I was very evil. And so, as I'm now trying to become righteous, I received the free gift of righteousness, but my soul and my body still had the identity of Dave the sinner. And so, as I began to combat my flesh, my desires, my longings to do the forbidden things that I was accustomed to doing, partying, sexual impurity, all that stuff, as I began to try to do that, like every other young person 
who had been in bondage or had been an addict or had been in habitual sin, whether it's pornography or you're a, a meth addict. doesn't matter. Addiction's addiction. I mean, there's some people that are just addicted to being jerks. I can't help it. It's just me. I'm a jerk. I don't want to be a jerk, but I am a jerk. How can I change? So I, I, I began to be, because I got, I was so wonderfully blessed by God to be come into a church like this as a young believer, I began to learn the disciplines of fasting and prayer from the pulpit of the church as an expectation upon our lives. And so I am a type that I'm all or nothing. I've always been that way. Amen. I am all or nothing. I'm just that kind of guy. I'm like, if I'm going to sin, honey, I'm going to sin. And if I'm going to live for God, honey, I'm going to live for God. There ain't no half in, half out with me. I've always been that way in my life. I think sometimes it's been a blessing and sometimes it's been a curse. It's been a blessing if it was all pointed to God, but it's been a curse if it was all pointed to the devil. You know what I'm saying? So I began to learn about the power of fasting was a young man, like I had been very, I'd been sexually active from my early teenage years, and I had, I had a horrible, horrible time battling lust as a young man in my life, even though I was married. And a lot of young men think, I get married, my lust days are over. Honey, they, no, 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 that's about a three-month reproval, or repri- uh, reprieve. But them demons are going to start haunting again after you get a little familiar with your new wife. And so I, I began to say, how can I break this thing? Because I don't want to be trying to worship God, checking out a baby in church. Amen. And, you know, women don't, well, I, I used to say women don't really understand this, but they're about as perverted as men are anymore in this culture because of pornography. Pornography, I think, awakened in women some of the perversion that men have fought for generations, you know or ever since the Garden of Eden. But anyway, I, I had these problems. And so I began to recognize and realize, okay, how do I overcome these physical desires? Testosterone, folks. I was a walking bag of hormones at 26, just like, you know, most guys are. You know, it's like the story, the young man come up to his dad one day, he said, Dad, when's it going to stop? When's it going to stop? This uh, girl thing, and his dad looked at him and said, I don't know, son, let's go ask your grandpa. (laughs) And so the dad and the son went to grandpa. Dad, grandpa, when's it going to stop? I don't know, when's it going to stop? And the grandpa said, let's go ask your great-grandpa. Come on, somebody. There's as many 70-year-old men addicted to porn as there are 30-year-old men or 15-year-old men. Are you hearing me? It's a battle. And so I begin as a young man to say, I don't want to do this. And so I one day just decided, you know what? I'm going to fast. And I started fasting. Well, here's what I found out. About the third day of a water fast, it's like my body just... Shut down. My, my mind was no longer plagued with undressing every woman I saw in my imagination. And I went, 
this works pretty good. Now, you may think I'm a little crazy, and maybe I was, but leave me alone. Because <laughs> crazy works for me. So, about the second year I was saved, I started fasting three days a week. How often? Every week. And then I started fasting five days once a month. So three days, three weeks, five days, the fourth week. Then I started fasting 10 or 12 days once a quarter. And I did that for a year. And the guys I worked with thought I was nuts because every day they'd be eating lunch. Are you eating today? No. Chisholm, man, you need to eat. And I'm like, leave me alone. I'm not... I'm not fighting lust. Leave me alone. I'm happy in Jesus. Leave me alone. I'd rather not eat than sit around and burn in my loins for your wife. I know I'm being graphic. But I'm being graphic when 70% of the men in a church are addicted to pornography. That's a national American statistic, by the way. So yes, I'm being graphic. Why? It's going to take some powerful weapons to destroy this perverse thing that is over our nation and our culture. This sexualization of America. That began many years ago. And so, I, I began fasting. And what we'll call, I began living a fasted life. And so for the last 42 years... I have practiced periodic times of fasting and extended fasting. But here's where I want to get to this morning. We've got to move on. Matthew 6, 1. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now, I'm calling this section Methods and motives of fasting. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have what? Glory for men. Everybody say motive. Surely I say to you, they have their reward. So in other words, whenever I do something for God, and I want men to know I'm doing it, those men are typically going to go, Wow, Dave, that's pretty spiritual. You're really a spiritual guy. And God said, that's the only reward you'll get is the applause of man. You'll get no reward from me. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you want me patting you on the back? Or do you want God giving you eternal rewards? I'm just saying. Now, you might want to get on social media tomorrow and say, Okay, everybody, Facebook world, I'm starting a fast. Now listen, I'm going to report in every 15 minutes and tell you how I'm doing. In fact, why don't you all fast with me? Because misery loves company. In fact, we're all going to do a fast together. I'll be back in 15 minutes. 15 minutes later, your live chat pops up, you know, your live... Man, it's rough. I'm starting to get hungry. But God's with me. We can do this, man. We can do this together. I'll be back on at 1 o'clock. So, 
But when you do a charitable deed, charitable deed, let not your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be done in secret, and your Father who sees you in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. But assuredly I say unto you, what's it say? What was their reward? Men saw me. Everybody said, ooh, look at the Pharisees. Man, they're so spiritual. God said, that's all they get. They get nothing from me. But when you pray, go into your room. When you've shut the door, pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. Then He gives us the Lord's Prayer. Now, I, want to, I don't have time to go through all the Lord's Prayer. That's not the teaching this morning. But verse 16 says this. I want you to see this. Everybody look at it with me. Who said this? Is it red letter in your Bible? When you fast. Don't be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance. They disfigure their faces that they would appear unto men to be fasting Surely I say to you, they have their reward. Everybody say motive and method. Now, does that mean we can't ever pray with anybody? No. Does that mean there's no such thing as a corporate fast? No. In fact, we have instances of corporate fasts. But I want you to know as a daily practice of your life, why don't you try doing it God's way? And see what kind of breakthrough comes. Instead of trying to be the next social media sensation. Huh? Again, am I making this up? Now some people have asked me over the years, how come we don't do a 21 day fast every January like all the other churches do? I just told you. That's why. You say, well I don't agree with you. That's fine. When you have a church, you can do it your way. God bless you. Hope it works out. But I have a problem with just jumping on the bandwagon of things that are traditional, that are not rooted and grounded in scriptural truths. I got enough things to do in the Bible without adding something else. I'm just telling you. Amen. I remember one day, <clears throat> Kevin was correcting me over some legalism I'd gotten into in, and Kevin made this statement to me. He said, David, there's enough rules and regulations in the Bible. You sure don't need to be adding more to them. Amen. I said, you're right. We got enough thou shalt nots. I don't need to be adding more to it. So in other words, why are you fasting? What's the motive? And what's the method? Well, the motive should be a heart cry for some kind of change to be initiated, and the method should be as secret as possible. Unless there is an announced corporate 
And the guys say, no, Dave, what these guys are all doing on social media is corporate fasting. And I'm like, okay, that's, that may be the case, but I've been seeing way too much of it to believe that God calls every church to a corporate fast between the day after New Year's and the Super Bowl. Just saying. I don't know. Maybe that's me. Maybe I'm being critical. I don't know. But I'm just giving you why we do what we do in this church. Would I, would I, you know, counsel you for fasting and prayer in your life? Absolutely. And I would also throw in, and by the way, as secretive as possible. Well, what about corporate prayer? Yes, we have corporate prayer, and it's very much demonstrated all through the New Testament. In fact, let me say it this way. There's a greater demonstration of corporate prayer in the New Testament than there is corporate fasting. Go through and read the Bible. There's one or two instances where we see a declared fast. One of them was the Apostle Paul. While they were being tossed in Eurycliden, the hurricane or the tropical monsoon that was in the Mediterranean Sea where they had been like you know, all them days without food. He said, you've, you've abstained from food. They were all crying out to God to be saved. That's a good corporate fast right there. Am I saying we'll never call a corporate fast here? No. If the Spirit of God came on me tomorrow and say, call the church to fast, I'd do it. But I'm not going to do it on a calendar event that has become so traditional, it has no real spiritual meaning. That's, I guess I'm just against that. Okay? I'm not going to, again, I'm not going to get in toe-to-toe arguments over people that want to do it. That's fine. Go, go do whatever you want. I'm teaching you. I'm responsible to teach you. You're my congregation. So I'm only responsible to teach you. And I can only tell you, over and over and over, Jesus made it clear, keep things as secret as you can between you and God. Because he wants to reward you openly. Now, when you do fast, people are going to ask you. You eating lunch today? No. Are you fasting? That's what they always ask next. Now, I'm not going to look at them and say, no. Now, I'm guilty of lying. Now, I got to fast an extra day and repent for lying. I'll just simply, I'll say, yeah. Now, you ain't going to make a big deal of it. I don't want your honor. I don't want your applause. I want his. This is between me and him. I've been married to Kyung for a long time. That's the safest answer, man. I mean, Kyung and I have been together as a couple since 1980. Think about it, 1980. Actually, we met in 79, didn't we? Yeah, 1979. We met in 1979. And... I have never said, Kion, I'm fasting to please you. I'm not going to eat for three days to prove my love to you. Have you? I've never done that for my wife. I don't know why. What would be the purpose of that? She'd say, well, why don't you just stop jumping down my throat? Why don't you just stop doing this? Why don't you just stop doing this? I don't care if you eat or not. Why don't you treat me with respect, right? Okay, let's go to Isaiah 58. (laughs) I set you up for this one. All right, Isaiah 58. Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. 
Hmm. How many preachers are doing that? Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. As a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God, they ask me of the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. Why have we fasted, they say, and you've not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? In fact, the day of your, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and you ex exploit all your laborers. Everybody say fasting even becomes financial. Whoa. Everybody say, fasting can affect your bottom line. You fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Is this the fast that I've chosen? For a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out a sackcloth and ashes? Why would you call this a fast, an acceptable day to the Lord? Now look what he says next. Is this not the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the heavy burdens and to let the oppressed go free? And that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring to your house the poor who are cast out when you see the naked that you cover him and hide not yourself from your own flesh? That means you won't even help your own family. He says, then your light will break forth like the morning and your healing shall spring forth speedily. And your righteousness shall go before you. And the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness. If you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul. Then your light will break forth and shine as the dawn in the darkness. Your darkness shall be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones and you will be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations, and you shall be called the repair, the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and you call the Sabbath a delight, a holy day of the Lord, honorable, and you shall honor him, not doing your own ways, not finding your own pleasure, not speaking your own words. Then you shall delight yourself in the Lord, 
and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, we call that in theology, God's chosen fast. So again, when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites. When you fast, you know, like I say, it'd be like me saying to my wife, I'm, to show you how much I love you, I'm not going to eat for three days, and then I continue to treat her with disrespect. Good. Same thing the church does. When's the last time you were fasting and you took and you added up the money you would have spent on food and found someone that doesn't have food and blessed them with it? When's the last time? One thing you'll learn if you fast is how much time you have. (laughs) Man, you talk about time slows down. I mean, time just goes when you fast. Why not give some time to someone else? In other words, I'm going to take, you know, in fact, according to the assumption here and and what God's projecting as expectation when he says you exact all your wages from your employers, in other words, okay, you really want to fast? I'm a businessman. I own my own business. Got money in the bank? Yeah. Okay, you really want to fast the Lord? Yeah. Call in your employees and give them three days off with pay. Bless them in the name of Jesus. A hush fell over the room. Isn't that what he said? You exact all your wages? When you're fasting, you exact all your wages? You know, again, I'm just bringing out, folks, I'm a fasting kind of guy. I believe in it. I'm going to practice it, and I'm going to teach you to practice it. But I think if we would just add a few more biblical things to it instead of just what's trending right now on Facebook, I think your fast will accomplish so much more in your life. And I didn't even get into the physical benefits of fasting. Physical benefits of fasting. While the worship team's coming up. (laughs) Hostess coffee cake. Ooh, this ought to be good. Calories, 170. Total fat, 6 grams. Saturated fat, one and a half grams. Cholesterol, 15 milligrams. Sodium, 150 milligrams. Total carbohydrates, 28 grams. Protein, one gram. Well, uh, wait a minute. Hostess wouldn't feed us anything that wasn't good for us. You're right. Ingredients listed in order of volume. In case you didn't know this, when you read something in the grocery store, the first ingredient means there's more of this than anything else. Sugar. That's got to be good for me. 
enriched flour. Well, if it's enriched, that means it's got to be better, right? No. <laughs> In fact, it's the worst flour you can eat. Um, they ought to call it impoverished flour. You know how they you know how they get away with saying it's enriched? They take one little particle of the cheapest vitamin that can be produced and they throw it in there. They enrich it with niacin. How much niacin? One half of one percent of the daily recommended intake. Okay, wait a minute. Hold on. It gets better. Bleached wheat. Malted barley flour. Bleached malt. Yeah, I read that wrong, but it's a little print. <laughs> I can't even read this stuff. <laughs> I got to get down to my bifocals a little deeper, folks. What is that word? Monodiatite. Soybean oil, brown sugar corn syrup, butter, contains 2% or less of the following ingredients. Acid phosphate. I'm glad it's only got 2% or less of that. Drinking acid. Oh, but Dave, I'm doing a healthy bar today. Nature's Valley. This is a good one. Whole grain oats. Somebody give a cheer. Negated by sugar. <laughs> Canola and or sunflower oil. Rice flour. Honey. That's where they get the honey. Brown sugar syrup. Baking soda. Soy lectin. Thin. Turn around and ask somebody, do you know what that is? Neither do I. <laughs> but it's healthy. Nature Valley says so. I did find one back there. I won't even get into the protein one because everybody thinks, well, I'll eat the protein one. Same ingredients. This one actually is not bad. IQ bar. This one's not bad. Really, it, it, I was kind of kind of like, yeah, I would actually eat that. Nuts, peanuts and almonds. Almonds are better for you than peanuts. Prebiotic blend of tapioca fiber, vegetable fiber. Oh, I'm cool with that. Protein from pea protein. Yeah, I can do that. Crisps from pea protein. Tapioca starch, pea protein again. A lot of pea in this. Natural flavors, which, do you know what that means when they put natural flavors on something? <laughs> you know what that means? Everybody say absolutely nothing. And then all the way down, total sugars, one gram. That's probably... The best out of all those you could eat, and it probably tastes like crap. 
Hold on. Oh my gosh, it looks like a turd. It has a form of nutrition, but denies the flavor thereof. However, I'll eat it. <laughs> I'm fasting. <laughs> In fact, you could probably eat this while you're fasting and God wouldn't even count it. Because he would look at you and say, if you can eat that, I'm putting that in the fasting column. Amen. Hallelujah. But I've honestly found that fasting really does initiate. It's just a, it's, it's like a, a weapon. It's like an, a nuclear warhead in the spirit to break things in your life and to initiate new things in your life. It really is powerful. And so I encourage you to practice it. Amen. I encourage you to practice it every day. Amen. And eat more IQ bars.